Tonight we'll be in 2 Corinthians 11, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. 2 Corinthians 11. As we read these letters from Paul to the Corinthian church, not many of us are going to be in Paul's position, so it's it's pretty obvious and pretty easy to put yourself in the Corinthian shoes as opposed to Paul's shoes. But that being said, much of the things I think in chapter 11 can apply to us as we minister to other people individually, whether that's a family member continually, uh, co-workers, loved ones, whoever it may be, just friends that you've been trying to share the gospel with or trying to help in their faith. Um, I think it would help um, to see Paul's heart on the matter and to help us maintain that heart in those relationships, because it can get tough sometimes. Um, As you share over and over again, oftentimes the same thing, um, and you see your loved one, whoever it may be, go around the mountain again and again. Um, We can see Paul's heart here and understand what the Holy Spirit wants to do, and that the Holy Spirit is tireless, I guess is the point. He's tireless when it comes to ministering. He doesn't ever stop. He never get it never gets old. He never throws up his hands and walks away, and um, and I appreciate that um, because as a man, <laughs> a human, I mean, it's very easy for me to just say, "Okay, have it your way." You know, there are times I think when the Holy Spirit um, makes Himself scarce. He's still there, never leaves us or forsakes us because He's God, but um, can be quiet for a season. And I think maybe we could take some advice in that area when we minister to people. Um, that Maybe there's a time to just let them go on their merry way for a while. You still being very much in contact with them if they need it, but to let them realize maybe that they need it more than they know. And so Paul has left the Corinthian church. They've been on their own for a while now to catch us up. What's happened is some people, some famous teachers some better teachers, some more eloquent teachers have come into the Corinthian church and begin to share, but not for their best interests. See, Paul was always looking out for their heart, and that's why we minister to people around us. It's because we love them. There are others that see the same people that we're ministering to as prey, that sees them as an opportunity. Um, um, We call them coin hustlers in the ministry. Um, And unfortunately, Corinthians have found a lot of coin hustlers and a lot of abusers. Paul will get into that tonight. They're a little more rough than we are today. I remember back in the day, you'd have elders chairs up here um, in front, and there'd be two elders that would sit there, and they'd be looking for people falling asleep kind of thing, you know. And boy, if they caught you, they'd just get up and walk right on down and wake you up you know, right in the middle of the service. I don't think we could pull that off today. Um, We keep them in the back now. They've got yardsticks, though. No. Can you imagine, you know? Well, the Corinthian church has some teachers that have come in that are doing that, actually slapping them on the face and smacking them around, abusing them at church, and they like it. They appreciate the physical harshness of it unfortunately. And Paul's looking at this situation and saying, what did, what, what did I do wrong? How did I go off the rails with you people? You know, And so that's where we are in this chapter. And maybe you can identify with that as you minister to people around you. That What is it about my patience, my kindness, my mercy, my forgiveness, my gentleness that's offensive to you, to where you would go off and find someone that's none of those things, and really appreciate their insight into your life. You know, verse 1 of chapter 11. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, Paul says, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. 
For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul starts off with saying he has a godly jealousy. There's a difference between our jealousy, which can be very selfish and is actually sin. When we look at somebody and say, that's my possession, those are mine, she's mine, he's mine, and we get all fired up about it, that's a sinful jealousy. That's not the kind of jealousy God has for us. God has a godly jealousy, obviously, and Paul emulates that in his life as well. As, as he describes himself as someone who's betrothed this people, this group, to Jesus. Now, we don't understand that because we don't have that cultural example, but you would, in Israel, betroth yourself, your daughter, your husband, or your, your, your son, to the other, and they would wait a year. We would call it an engagement, but this is a different kind of engagement. This is an engagement that if you wanted to break this engagement, you would have to get divorce papers. It was that serious. Now, they had not consummated the relationship. That happens on the wedding night one year later, but it's as if they're married for one year. You may not depart from one another. Now, I don't know what the purpose of that for is, except perhaps a biblical example here. Maybe that's why they have that tradition. I don't know where it started or how, but that's what they have. So when Paul says, and, and so with that betrothal, with that engagement binding, the groom wouldn't watch her. You would have your best man make sure that she's kept safe for that year, that she's true to you and she's protected and her honor is protected. You know, very chivalrous, you know, very not meant as a spy, you know, checking her phone kind of thing. Um, but more along the lines of I'm, I'm her guardian, I'm going to usher her in. Paul feels that way about the church. Christ has not come to marry us yet. That's the marriage supper of the land. That's going to happen. But we are, as believers, betrothed to him. We're waiting for the redemption. We're waiting for the, to be picked up. We're, we're on layaway, so paid for. Just need someone to come pick us up. We're waiting for that return, that Jesus will come and grab us. Until that happens, Paul feels very responsible for the Corinthian church, and that's the godly jealousy he has for them. That's the heart he has for them. It isn't about a possession. It's about taking you in and bringing you to Christ, however long that is, a pure, chaste virgin by the time he comes. I don't want to see you commit spiritual adultery on my watch, Paul says. We get the picture. That's the kind of jealousy we have for the people that we're ministering to, isn't it? We have a love for them. We hate to see them harm themselves. We hate them to see them go down that road again, knowing that God has great plans for them. He's got a future and a hope for them, and they're rejecting it, and they're going off in their own direction, and it breaks your heart, not because you're mad that you've lost a notch in your belt as a Christian. I thought I got one saved, and there they go off the rails. If you do have that heart, that's the wrong heart. But to see a loved one that you've been ministering to accept Christ and begin to go back down a bad road to backslide, that's when this kicks in, that godly jealousy. He's concerned about the serpent deceiving them like Eve was deceived. And that's a very important subject, a good topic to discuss and to dig into. How was she deceived? She was deceived with a little bit of truth and a whole lot of lies. It's easy when someone just blatantly lies to you, you can defend that. You, are, you, know, you can spot it, you can come against it, you can refute it. It's a lie, flat out lie. You know? When it's mixed with truth though, a little bit of truth, a little bit of lie, it's much harder to come against because if I come against a lie, it looks like I'm coming against the truth. We do that all the time. The, the world does that all the time. You'll see that interaction taking place. Um, you'll see louder with Crowder, you know, or these things online. These Christians that are confronting on the street, you know, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And the, the, the questions that come back to them as a defense mechanism from the people they're trying to street witness to often has a little bit of truth and a little bit of lie to where the person with the microphone who's trying to save them, trying to show the truth to them, has to really discern, wait a minute, you're not asking one question, you're asking two. One of those is no, the other is yes. 
It's very important to understand that as Christians, that when we try to defend what we believe about the Bible, well, I know that the Bible says that, but what about this, that, or the other thing? Those are separate issues. Let's take them one at a time. And that's how you defend, and that's how you talk about your faith. Yes, that is sin. Of course it is. And God hates that sin. But it doesn't mean he doesn't love the person committing the sin. That's why he died on the cross. You can't blend those two things and make me answer that. They're two separate issues. God loves the person but hates what they're doing. And if they die in that sin, they're in big trouble. Paul finds himself worried about them being deceived by these teachers that are coming into the church, giving a little bit of truth and a whole lot of lies. And they can't, make the, they can't discern the difference, unfortunately. They're going to get a different spirit. They're going to get a different Jesus. They're going to get a different gospel. And they may well put up with it. We are responsible. I'm responsible. You are responsible to know the difference. What is the true Jesus? Who is he? What does he believe and what does he teach us? We're also to know who the true spirit is versus all the other spirits. We're also to know the true gospel versus all the false gospels. That is our responsibility to know that. And I would take the time to do that if you haven't done that already. What does Jesus teach? What does the word say? That's why we study the word. Oh, we're doing another chapter. We are absolutely doing another chapter. It's the most important thing we can do to ground ourselves in God's word so that we can defend, but also explain, minister, serve. Scriptures come to mind by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can give them to people when we need to. They're they're on the tip of our tongue. We can't remember, but the Holy Spirit brings them to our remembrance. It's vital. The Corinthian church has lost that. A different Jesus is no salvation. We can't tweak who he is as a person. He's Whoever they're bringing to you is a false Jesus and does not save your soul. We have no excuse. We've been given a book from Genesis to Revelation that explains everything that pertains to life and godliness. Everything. The volume of the book is written of Jesus. That's it. We have no other source to get information about Jesus except this book. So that helps us, doesn't it? Oh, we can't put Jesus in a box. He absolutely puts himself within this text right here and says, do not go beyond what's written. Now the world, Satan, would love to say, well, yeah, yeah, well, this is written by man and this is and all the other ridiculous arguments they have, foolish arguments. Of course it's written by man. Who else was going to write it? What are the other books that you have in your life that you believe wholeheartedly? The dictionary is written by man. Do you believe it? Well, maybe not so much anymore as they change definitions on us, right? And so on. Cookbooks, you doubt those? Well, I don't know. It says I'm supposed to get meringue, but I don't know about meringue. A man wrote this or a woman. You don't even think twice about it, right? All the other holy books were written by men. Why are those okay? This is the only book that has prophecy. This is the only book that validates itself through foreknowledge. No other book does that. No other holy book does that. No other recipe book does that. Everything that pertains to life and godliness is found here. We are responsible. The Corinthian church is responsible. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth teaching them the entire counsel of God. They know it. In order to believe what is being brought in by these other teachers, you have to get rid of what Paul taught. They have to dismiss it. And that is no different than today. If you want to believe something that's ungodly, now it won't be packaged that way, you will have to dismiss Scripture in order to bring it into your life. And they're doing it. And they're doing it. It's very hard to find a place that doesn't do that. And we're responsible. We're called to be Bereans. You don't know what that means if you're a new Christian. You know that. That's a group of people that when Paul taught in the synagogue, they listened to him and received it gladly. But when he was done, they went home and searched the scriptures to make sure that it was so. Nobody is above that scrutiny. 
No teacher is above that kind of scrutiny. Everybody is. We're all called to that honesty and transparency. There's a simplicity in Christ that's being corrupted by these guys, and that bothers Paul, and it bothers all of us, I think. The beauty of the gospel is the simplicity of it. The fact that anybody in the children's ministry, any five-year-old or four-year-old or who knows how low it goes, I don't even know, can understand it and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. If we get beyond a five-year-old level, we've complicated it too much. We've gone beyond Jesus can sit children in the midst of him, and they get it, and they understand it. They have faith. He even called the disciples out on it. Unless you have the faith like this child here, you have no part in me. You don't understand it. It's that simple. It can't be that simple, these other teachers must have said. Now, the reason this is getting complicated And we don't know the names of the teachers, and we don't know what their philosophy was or what kind of heresy they were bringing in. But the way it sounds is it's legalism. They're blending the law with grace and mercy. Saying, yeah, 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 church, yeah, 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 Jesus, Holy Spirit, we got all that. But also synagogue, sacrifices, circumcision, all these other things are vital. In other words, to become a Christian, you must go through the Jewish path, must proselytize into the Jewish faith and then become a Christian, but maintain all of it. And that's not true. Jesus came and fulfilled the law completely in what he did at the cross. He was the lamb. All the other lambs were foreshadowing what he would do one day. Every lamb they ever sacrificed, any animal that was ever, ever, their blood was ever shed at the temple was all foreshadowing what the one lamb was going to do when he came. All looking forward to that one point in time at the cross. When that happened, the temple's destroyed. Do we know why? Because we don't need it anymore. He's no longer in a temple. He's no longer in the location. He no longer needs sacrifices. The lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world had been slain. We now have a personal relationship with him. He dwells in our hearts. We are now the temple. To go back to the temple is to say, the body is no longer the temple. I have to be at the physical location. That's why Jesus said to the woman at the well, he's very specific, one day... We're not going to worship at Jacob's well, like you just said, nor are we going to worship at the temple. He's looking for those who are going to worship him in spirit and truth, and that's anywhere, all the time. Paul sees the Corinthian church going down that road, and it's because he loves them, it's a concerning thing for him. Also pick something up from this, and this will help us also. Be anxious for nothing, and in everything, By prayer and supplication, make your request be made known to God. Don't worry about a thing. Be anxious for nothing. Paul's awfully anxious here. We would describe it as that. He doesn't say the word anxious, but he says he's concerned. Well, you don't have to be concerned about that. God's got it. God's in control. Paul is concerned. It's okay to be concerned. It's okay to be thinking about people and the direction that they're going and to lay awake at night wondering, oh God, you know, laboring in prayer for them is what we're called to do during those times. Not to be flippant and say, eh, you know, it'll all work out. No, that heart that we have for them is the same heart Christ has. It's the same heart Paul has. He's concerned they may well put up with it. You might receive these things. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul writes to the Galatians who ran into the same problem, probably the same group of guys coming in right behind Paul trying to ruin their beautiful, simple faith. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, because there is no other gospel is what he means. There's other good news, but it is a different gospel, which means it's going to be bad news. But but there are some who trouble you, and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Go to hell is what he's saying. That's pretty strong language for someone who might be just off a degree or two, who might be twisting the gospel just enough. Paul says, let them be accursed. 
even if an angel shows up and says these things to you. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Paul desperately protects the grace of God. He desperately protects that grace and mercy that God offers us. That freedom we have to worship him in spirit and truth, to bring any kind of bondage or add any kind of additive to our relationship with Jesus, Paul is quick. He's quick, quick, quick to cut it off. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 tells Timothy, you young pastor, listen up. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead it is appearing in his kingdom. <laughs> he wants him to know, I want you to hear what I'm saying, Timothy. What I'm about to tell you, I'm swearing before God and everybody else. Hear me. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Not you, Timothy. It's not going to get any easier, Timothy. They're going to not want to hear what you have to say, but that doesn't mean you change your message because they have itching ears. You let them depart. But you share the truth no matter what. Preach the word. Can't be any more clear than that. Verse 5 of chapter 11, back in 2 Corinthians. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Now, Paul's a very sarcastic person, if you didn't know. And this is very tongue-in-cheek. The word eminent apostle is almost, you could translate it like super saint. He's being very tongue-in-cheek. I'm not inferior to the most super saint Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. We have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. You've seen us. You've watched us. I may not be the best speaker. He does have a squeaky voice, so they say. So the historians say. I don't know how they know, but they do. But even he admits it. I'm not the greatest speaker. You know, it's funny. All the men that God chose... Most of them said the same thing. I'm not very good at speaking. So don't let that ever be an excuse in your repertoire that you can pull out and pull that. I want you to go share with that person. I'm not very good at speaking, God. You just joined Moses and Paul. It won't work and he won't leave you alone. That means you fumble through it. It means you did that, what I just did there. You just do it. You walk up by faith and say, I have no idea what's about to come out of my mouth. All I know is I'm supposed to open it and he'll fill it. And so I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. And it won't be that smooth. You know, it'll be, I, but, you know, I, um, um, you know, um, you know, those kind of speakers. It'll be that way. But the Holy Spirit mixed with your obedience to open your mouth will touch and change lives. The work is his. He wants to use us. Don't ever be afraid to do that. I'm not inferior to these guys. Even though I am untrained, well, so were they. You turn to Luke chapter 24, verse 32. They said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Paul had a way. When Paul shared, I mean, honestly, when he first came to Corinth, a church got planted. That didn't happen everywhere he went. He went a lot of places he went to. But a church gets planted. That means people heard Paul with his squeaky, untrained speaking abilities and received Christ. The scripture we just read, of course, is Jesus. But the idea is, Jesus says, I will make my home in you and in me so that when I speak, it's the Holy Spirit No matter what it sounds like to the ear, like Paul, squeaky voice and not a very good speaker, the power of God is in his word. 
And when it's shared honestly and from a heart that loves him, it's powerful and effective. Always accomplishes what it was set out to do. Always. I've heard very eloquent speakers share scripture. And it falls flat for me. I hear bumbling buffoons share the same scripture, but with a heart who knows the shepherd. And it's amazing. It's unbelievable. We often ask, or I do, ask guys to fill in for me up here. There are times when I'll call them up and say, hey, do you want to teach? And of course, the answer is always, you know, good. I'm glad. I'm glad they're not going, finally. You know, they, <laughs> you know. <laughs> now, now, now they just heard me say that, so that's how they're going to answer me, because that's the kind of guys they are. If there's one thing I could share with them and all of you, you just spend time with Jesus. It doesn't matter about your notes necessarily. I mean, you do the study to show yourself approved for sure. Go over the text. But if you spend time in prayer and with Jesus and you get the text for yourself in your heart, it will be the most amazing sermon anybody's ever heard because it comes from a genuine heart who received it and is just excited to tell other people about what they learned. That's the perfect sermon every time. Read it and go over it until you're changed and transformed by the word of God in your life. And then just get up without notes if you have to and just share from your heart what God did when you went over that text. It's a perfect sermon. Paul, when he shared God's word, it was powerful, not because of his ability or his training, but because of the time he spends with Jesus. Moses coming down from the top of the mountain glowed. He glowed to the point where the people said, cover your face, it's too shiny. He had no shine. But because he had been in the presence of God, he glowed. And you're like, man, you are glowing. Sorry. <laughs> Didn't even know I was. Spend time with Jesus and you'll glow. You will shine. How do I shine in this dark world? Just spend time with him. Love him. Worship him. Just singing a song to your Lord in your quiet time. I think I'm supposed to read the Bible every morning. Fine. If you don't feel like it someday, get a worship song out and just sing. From your heart to his, by yourself, true act of worship, because nobody can hear your beautiful, melodic voice or your sound that you make if it's not that melodic. It will be to him. No matter how you sound to everybody else, it'll be absolutely stunning to him. That's my kid. Ever hear someone do that to you? Oh, you've got to see a picture of my baby. (laughs) Yep, that's a baby, all right. Squishy and round and like every other one I've ever seen, you know. No offense. I'm kidding. But to them... When your father hears you sing, when you spend time with him, that's all he's doing. He's pulling out his wallet. You got to see him. Look at her. Look at her. Isn't that the most beautiful voice you've ever heard? I guess, you know, kind of thing. But to him, it's amazing. Spend time with him. Matthew 7, 28 through 29, another time when they didn't know who they were talking to on the road to Emmaus. Well, that was, I'm sorry, that was Luke 24, a different time. Matthew 7, 28, 29. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, he just shared, just taught. The people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He taught like he knew it, like he understand it, like he wrote it. Now that's him and I understand we got to give Jesus some credit. It is him, God come in the flesh. But when you read the word of God for yourself first and it gets into your heart, you will share in such a way with other people, that they realize this isn't memorized. This isn't a script. I get nervous about those ministry styles that say, just script it, you know, or whatever. Just say these things or whatever. Sometimes those are okay for crutches to help you get through it, but I I guarantee you the Holy Spirit wants to say something specific and individual to the person you're in front of. You don't know what that is. It's hard to script that. Both times Jesus taught in such a way that it changed people's lives. It's the same word they'd heard in synagogue their whole lives, but this time when they heard it, there was authority. Our hearts burned within us. It was different. Different. 
That's how it's supposed to be every time. Verse 7. Paul says, Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? A little more sarcasm there. Should I have charged you money? Was it sin that I did it for free? Is that what bothers you? It's funny. Some truth to it. If it doesn't cost a lot of money, if it's free, it can't be worth much, you know? And that's how people looked at it. No, this guy has a huge speaking fee. I mean, it costs us $20,000 just to get him to come and share the gospel. Must be amazing. Oh, he's going to change lives. Well, yeah, he changed the color of the lights. There was really good worship music that came in. The mood was set, you know? You know? Paul says, I guess I should have been a little more showy. Maybe I should have charged you money. I was humbled or humbling around. I was humble around you and uh, you were exalted in the process. Maybe that was my sin. Verse eight, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied In other words, you guys didn't, but they did. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. I'm not going to change that habit. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in, uh, in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. Of course I love you. That's why I do this. I didn't want anything to get in the way of the gospel. I didn't want me charging you or coming up to you saying, hey, you mind if I get a meal? Oh, that's why he came. That's why he's preaching the gospel. He's one of those. He's a carpetbagger. He's just looking for a free meal. That's why he shared the gospel. And out goes the gospel because the motives aren't clear. Paul says, I want to make sure my motives were clear to you. When I needed something, I didn't bring it up. That's important. Make your request be made known to God, maybe not to man all the time. Let God truly answer your requests, your prayers. Keep them quiet. Keep them between you and him so that he can get the glory for it. And that's all Paul wanted to do. Other churches did provide for Paul. After they sent him on his way, they gave him what he needed to go there, and he he used that. See, an attack on Paul's motives is an attack on Jesus. That's how Paul took it. That's why he's so defensive. I feel like it's folly, he says, for me to talk like this to you. I feel embarrassed that I'm bringing this up. This is embarrassing that I'm trying to give you credentials for you to receive my heartfelt love for you. You know, What more do you want from me except for my word that I love you? You know, It's embarrassing. But he can't let it go because Christ has given him the command to go to this place and start this church. And now they're his. These are the sheep of my pasture, even though they bite me. And I've got to make sure they're okay and fed and well. And I see him going off and getting in trouble and doing all these things. I got to gather them. I got to go get these guys. He felt personally responsible for them. Of course I love you. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul's humility, Paul's servanthood comes from the example of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest statements you'll hear from unbelievers. And if God in his glory would just stick his head through the clouds and say, I'm real, then I will surely believe. But that's not how he wanted to do it. He didn't want to come down in his regal appearance and say, you must bow down to me. Now that time will come. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. After they've rejected the humility and the beauty of Jesus. Okay, I've got to be king sometime. I've got to rule and reign sometime. Until that day comes, you have a moment and a time of grace and mercy to receive my humble service to you. My humility at the cross was for you. But eventually I'm going to come back. And that's the end of it. The time is up. 
for grace and mercy. The time is up for salvation. I'm here. I'm in charge. You're going over here because you didn't love me and you didn't want me and you didn't want to be a part of me. That's fine. I have a place for you. You people are in my kingdom. Wonderful. Let's start. Paul is simply following in the mannerisms of Jesus. Jesus made himself of no reputation so that he could be received by even the lowest person. Verse 12, but what I do, Paul says, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. Very simple thing there. He says it in a funny way, but it's very clear. I'm going to continue to do free of charge stuff to be the servant of all because those guys can't handle that kind of ministry. They want to boast and say they're just like Paul. They're just as powerful as Paul. They're just as eminent as Paul the apostle. But for them to do that, they're going to have to start doing things for free, and they can't. I'm going to continue my path and do that because I know that these false prophets, these false teachers, these false shepherds, they can't do it because there's no humility in them. It's amazing what people will reveal about themselves and they don't know they've revealed it. It can get embarrassing sometimes. A humble person doesn't talk about their humility. A generous person doesn't talk about their generosity. They may be, in appearance, generous, but the fact that they made it known says that there's a heart issue there and that it's an outward expression only. It has nothing to do with the inward work of the heart. I'm a true, truly a humble person. You should see how humble I am. No. no, I think I just did. In that moment right there. Paul says, all I have to do to, to distinguish or help you distinguish between the genuine and the false is to continue doing what I'm doing because they can't. False teachers cannot because they don't have a heart for you. Verse 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves in the, into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. You know what he just called them, right? Your father is Satan. These aren't just teachers that are off a few degrees or that are mildly in error, you know, and are just need to be tweaked a little bit. He says, no, these guys are sons of Satan that have come to you. I mean, he is calling them out. And so it's no wonder that they can transform themselves into, into you know, whatever. Angels of light. Satan does that. So, of course, they're able to do that. The deception is obvious to Paul, but it isn't to the Corinthians. A worldly worshiper, a worldly follower of Jesus Christ will gravitate towards worldly teachers. They'll gravitate towards worldly worship. They just will. That's what moves them. That's what causes them to make and take notes is, oh, you know, oh, the worldliness does it. That's what's causing the Corinthians the problem. They're not walking in the Spirit. They're not paying attention to the Spirit. They're not gravitating towards humility and meekness and gentleness and long-suffering and kindness. Instead, they're biting and devouring one, one another. They're finding a pecking order in the church. Who's the greatest? Who's the least? You know, down here. And so Paul's calling them out on all of that here in in these two letters, he's concerned for them. This isn't the first time this has happened. In Jude chapter 16 through 19, or Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter, 16 through 19, the writer here says about these false prophets, I mean, you got to read the whole chapter if you want to get the, but I didn't want to read it all to you. Verse 16, these, these false teachers, these people that Paul just described here, same group of guys, they're grumblers, they're complainers, they walk according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. The warning goes out from Jude because Paul sees him, Jude sees him, and then John, 2 John chapter, well, probably chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. There's only one chapter. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Don't be like the Galatians who went off and found a different gospel. Don't be like who Jude was writing about. Don't be like those guys. Be careful. I mean, this is, this is back when the Bible was written. The problems we see today have always been around. The way to protect yourself from it is to be a spiritual person, to know God's word, to keep it in your hearts, to be changed and transformed by it, to learn your shepherd's voice so that when you hear your shepherd's words come out of the mouth of somebody else, you recognize them. That I identify with. That we call it koinonia. There's a oneness there. I can feel, I just know, that's the Lord there. That's not the Lord. You'll be able to spot these things just by being in his presence, spending time with him. It isn't that complicated. Paul's just calling them out here. Verse 16, I say again, let no one think of me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool. But I also may boast a little. I mean, if we're going to boast, here we go. Paul's going to start boasting here. He's concerned about what they would receive. Here's what, you, here's what it looks like. Here's, here's what boasting in Jesus looks like. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast not according to the flesh, you see. Okay, here we go. You've heard boasting from them. This is what godly boasting looks like. And he says, and I feel foolish that I have to do it. It's ridiculous that I have to do this. But he does. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise, tongue in cheek. For you put up with it, if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say that we are too weak for that. But whenever anyone else or anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Paul's boldness was to be humble among them. But what they were looking for were people that were going to bring him into bondage. We love rules. Just tell me what to do and what not to do. Make a list. I'll put it up and I'll obey everything. I want to know everyone. I don't care if there's 120 of them. I'm going to keep every single one of those things and get check marks and stars. We like that. Something I can put on my fridge, you know. And then if you could bring me, you know, if you could devour me and take what's of mine, you know, if you could put yourself over me so that I can't make a move without talking to you first, if you could shepherd me like that, that'd be great. You know, hey, Pastor JD, it's a red car or a blue car. Which color do you think I should get? Definitely the red one. God says the red one, you know. Thank you. Never have to make another decision again. Never have to walk in the power of the Spirit. Never have to listen to my shepherd's voice ever again. I've got a man. I've got a man I can call. Oh, we miss the point entirely, don't we? Or they do anyway. The people we minister to, they want to go back to the temple where they see the priest in the white garb and they bring their lamb like they're supposed to because the rule said so. We don't know why we're doing it anymore, but here it is. And if he says it's okay, it must be okay. So, okay, kill it. And I pass my sins onto the lamb and then you kill. It's all good. I, I don't have to worry about him. What to worry about is the guy in front of me. Paul says, oh. We're too weak for that. We can't beat you. We can't take your money. We can't be answering all those questions for you. You need to seek the Lord. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We're too weak for that, he says. Verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? They speak as a fool. I am more. 
Then he gets a colon there because this is what a servant of Christ looks like. So he goes through his credentials. He goes through his physical pedigree. Here's my lineage, he says. I'm a Hebrew and I'm an Israelite, which means he's from the area of Judea, the good part. I mean, that's the sweet spot of Israel. Yeah, I'm from there. I'm of the seed of Abraham too. Am I a servant of Christ? Oh boy. So he describes what it looks like to be a servant of Christ. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, those are whippings, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. That was considered mercy. You could only do 40 according to the law, so they'd do 39 and say, see, we showed you mercy by not giving you that last one. Five times he got whipped like that. Can you imagine getting beat 39 times? Five times, you know. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. That's a lot of shipwrecks, Paul. I've never been in one. Can you imagine three? Floating on driftwood for a night and a day? Looking at the sharks swimming around you? Now, the question is, have these other speakers done this, these things? Well, no, because that's an embarrassment. That shows weakness. You see, the tall, the good-looking, the eloquent, the guy that's rich, the guy that has no problems, that's the guy we want to be our pastor. We don't want this squeaky guy who's, we don't know if he's going to be in prison next week or not. And he's always beat up. He's got that doctor always, be- hi, Paul's back. I got beat last night. Forgive the blood, you know, kind of thing. I mean, I brought my guest. I brought my visitor here. That's what he looks like. Would you just change your bandages, Paul? They're looking outward. They're looking at the material. They're looking at, well, they're fleshy. They're worldly. That's not a good guy. In perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils of cities, in perils of wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger, in thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things. There's more? What comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Now see, only someone who ministers to someone they love knows exactly what Paul's talking about right there. There's nothing worse. There's nothing worse than having a bad conversation with someone you love right before you go to bed, right? A bad phone call, a bad letter, a bad email, a bad text, whatever it may be. And then it's time to go to bed. And what do you do? It lays on you like a heavy blanket, doesn't it? And you sit there, you go over it. And why? And you're calling out to God, but you're so... Paul felt that for all those churches that he ever planted. Imagine the weight of that every night, laying in bed when he should be worrying about his wounds, his lack of food, the dark, damp cave that they've got him in tonight because he's been arrested, floating out in the deep. What's his concern? I wonder how Galatia's doing. I wonder if they're still walking away from the gospel, you know. Wow, what a heart. You're not alone when you feel that for your loved ones and the people you minister to. Paul felt that. It's normal. It isn't anxiety. It isn't something to be gotten rid of. It's something that, well, it's part of being like Christ. Christ has deep concern for us. Paul has deep concern for them. We have deep concern for those around us. In Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 24, from Miletus, He sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, Paul says to these group of pastors, this leadership (laughs) seminar, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly, And from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, 
Now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It's not a waste of time. Your ministry to people, even if it falls on deaf ears, is not a waste of time. Continue. That's what we're called to. And the reason it hurts is because you love deeply. That's why. Who is weak, Paul says, verse 29, and I am not weak. Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation. I hate it when he sees loved ones fall. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity or my weakness. That's what I'm going to boast in. The God of our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under um, Aratus, the king, was guarding the city of, of uh, Damascenes, I think, with the garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in the basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Now, why would you end a chapter like that? Well, here's why, and this is where we close tonight. Because Paul went into Damascus, if you remember on the road to Damascus, was when Paul got converted. Where was he? In what condition was he? His name was Saul, first of all. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had letters that he could arrest and kill every Christian he ever met. He came in bold and powerful, and he left broken, weak, humbled, beautifully saved, in a tiny little basket being let out the window. That is what it means to be saved. That's the beauty of Paul. That's the beauty of our relationship with Christ. Maybe we aren't as strong a speaker as those around us or don't have the the mind of some. I can't imagine having Paul's mind. What an amazing thing. We are who we are. God's called us and he chose us specifically. Knowing that alone, even if it does look like we're floating out of a basket out of the side, you know, a little humble, that's how he works. Be encouraged tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's heart for the Corinthian church. We thank you for the heart that you've given us for those around us. As as much pain as it can bring us sometimes, it can also bring abundance of joy when they hear, when they receive, and when they walk with you. It's all we ask. That's what brings us the most joy. Lord, we're thinking of people right now that are bringing us pain because we love them so much and because they're walking away from you, God. We lift them up to you and we pray that they'd return to you. We pray that you would open their eyes to receive all the good that you have for them, all the salvation, all the forgiveness, all the peace, all the mercy that you have for them. Help them just to see it, to embrace it, and to walk with you, and to never ever have to wonder again, to never have to be far from you, to never have to go through the painful things they're going through right now because they're staying close to their shepherd. We lift them up to you now. Lord, bless these folks as they go tonight. I pray that you'd encourage them in their ministries. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. We'll be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the week.